Let me start by saying it is so good to be here, to be back. Um, we, and I say that collectively, my family and I have missed you all dearly, and uh, we look forward to sharing uh, about our trip. Um, I need to connect with the Morrises and find out a time that works best for, for all of us to share. Um, we have a number of prayer requests. Um, you know, one highlight that I'll just share very, very briefly with you is um, you know, in ministry, there are many highlights, but one of the greatest highlights I've ever had in my life was sharing the gospel um, with a young man whose brother was baptized the last time we were there and having my sister be the uh, translator. Um, to serve alongside your, your family is an incredible thing, but to share the gospel with somebody with your sister t- interpreting, it was, just, it was just a magnificent thing and uh, a wonderful experience, and we'll look forward to sharing with you the highlights and the details, and uh, uh, I have to remind myself that uh, not, not everybody is excited to see the countless photos that we took, as I am, so uh, we will not uh, schedule a service where you can have to sit for two hours looking at all the photos, but uh, it, was, it was a great time, to say the least. Thank you for your prayers, and continue to be praying for that church in Albania. So, we are continuing through the book of Mark. And we have come to Mark chapter 9, and uh, last week we, uh, we looked at the transfiguration as uh, Travis was, walked us through that passage. This week we're going to look at the immediate following uh, story, and if you would turn your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 9, we're going to start at verses 14, and we're going to go through 29. So if you would, once you have turned there, stand, and we'll read this together. Or I'll read it, and you can... I want to, yeah... It's been a long month. Uh, Starting in verse 14, it says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute." And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time this morning that we can just consult you and seek you, Lord. Would you open our ears to hear that we might be taught by you? 
Would you keep from us the thoughts and the words of men and speak to us truth from you? Father, we pray that you would bless us this morning, challenge our hearts where we need convicted. Father, that we might grow into a deeper relationship with you. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. One of my greatest temptations in ministry, one of the things that I struggle with probably more than anything that I do, is trying to do the work of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, without the power of Jesus. It is a struggle I've always had. It's a struggle that I'm sure most people have. It's too easy to rely on giftings and, and skill sets and talents and, and plans and strategies. It's too easy to, to rely on, 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 on uh, things that are man-made. My personality lends itself even worse to this because I am a very determined, stubborn person. I'm pretty sure I inherited it from my grandfather and my great-grandfather. Um, if you ever wonder why I will never ask you for help, it's not because I don't desire your help. I'm just too stubborn. I will do it on my own, and I would rather not bother anyone and do something on my own, and I will come up with a plan. It's why the Lord, I'm convinced, keeps putting me back in the stupid boot because I don't know how to stop. I just, that's just my personality. I don't like to bother people. I like to do things. And when trouble starts coming, I start creating my own plan and my own vision of how to fix it and come up with a solution. And, and, and as I do this, I'm realizing that I do this in my own ministry. And the scariest thing in ministry is when I become so comfortable in my own ability that I rely zero on the Lord. And it doesn't have to just be in regards to ministry. It can be in regards to all aspects of life when you're facing trials in life. Well, here's the plan how we're going to get out of this. Life decisions, your calling in life. What am I going to do when I graduate from school? Well, I'm going to come up with a plan and I'm going to have the solution. When I have marital problems or parenting problems, whatever it is, one of the last things that I think about is consulting the Lord and being dependent on Him. Because it is so easy it is so easy, brothers and sisters, to fall into the temptation of a man-centered faith that is all about making me look good and not the Lord. And as we come to this story, I think that is the crux and the center, uh, uh, the whole point of this text. And I want to walk through the story, and we're going to kind of walk through it step by step, and when we get to the end, we have a, a, an application that we want to look at. So the story starts with a return, right? Jesus has been with his disciples on this uh, uh, Mount of Transfiguration, is what we call it today, um, where this incredible experience where Jesus goes up with some of these disciples, a few of them, and they have this incredible mountaintop experience, right? And Jesus is transfigured before them, and, and Peter in his... his, his uh, lack of, of filter oftentimes says some things that, you know, hey, this is a great place. We should stay here and build a monument and place to, this is where we should be all the time in ministry. 
And so this incredible moment, and it was an incredible moment too because it's a, it's a moment where Jesus is affirmed, confirmed by the Father right before he goes to the cross. So this is this incredible moment, and, and, and that's the scene, the, the start of it. And as Jesus returns from there, it says in verse 14, and when they came to the disciples, so if you keep in mind, uh, three of the disciples are with Jesus up on this mountaintop, the rest of them are down here below, and they return to the scene, and what is the scene? the argument between a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with the disciples. You imagine that scene? Jesus has this mountaintop experience, this moment of a confirmation from the Father where he's saying, this is my son whom I love. This is the second time the Father has publicly declared that to people. This is my son whom I love. Uh, uh, and, and then he goes down, and, and what does he find but those men he's been training up to be the future leaders of the church? And what are they doing? They're arguing with people. The people they're supposed to be ministering to, they're arguing with them. He walks down and he finds them not just arguing with the people, but it says that they were arguing with the scribes. The scribes are the ones that, that have as a motive to destroy Jesus. They're always looking for a way to discredit him. And so now we have a public moment where the disciples are arguing with the scribes, the disciples of Jesus, and the scribes who are trying to discredit everything Jesus does, and they're arguing about it. Great, great thing for Jesus to walk back to. It must have been embarrassing. You know, I find it oftentimes, and this is my tendency too, I, I have to be very careful. I, I am very prone to arguments. I think it's because I always want to be right. And it's, it's a lot of the heart of what, what's going on here. But uh, the disciples uh, were giving these scribes ammunition. And so the situation that they're arguing about, I tried to just scroll up on my Bible just so you know technology. It's been, a, it's been a long, long month. It says, and immediately all the crowd when they saw him were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about? Notice that the disciples don't answer. They're probably too embarrassed. But it says that the father, someone from the crowd answered him and it's the father. He says, teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast him out, and they were not able. So you have the scene where Jesus walks back, and they're arguing. The situation is this. A man has a, a son who has got a demon-possessed uh, a, who has a boy who has demon-possessed, and he's, he's uh, doing all these things to him. It's a very graphic, detailed description of what goes on. I mean, he tells them that it, it's a pretty violent thing, right? It seizes him, it throws him to the ground, it, and it, uh, he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. In fact, when uh, 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 Jesus later is going to ask him uh, how long, and he tells more about it, he says it often casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. I mean, this is a pretty intense thing. And the scene is this, that when Jesus asks, the Father tells them, I brought him to your disciples. And we might sit there and say, well, man, that's a pretty hefty expectation, right? But the reality is, this was not an unreasonable request for the disciples to cast out this demon. 
It was not an unreasonable request. In fact, Jesus in, in Mark chapter 6, if you flip back a couple uh, uh, chapters, you'll find that Jesus actually sends out the disciples and gives them authority over spirits. And then in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, they, they start reporting of how they actually cast out spirits. So they actually had authority to do it. They had witnessed Jesus do it. And they had done it themselves. This was not an unreasonable request. And the reality is they were unable to do it, which led to the argument. I find it significant, too, as a side note, that every time the disciples were apart from Jesus, they seemed to get themselves in trouble. Note that. Every time the disciples are apart from Jesus, they seem to get themselves in trouble. The same is true for us. The same is always true for us. The more we try to do ministry without Jesus, the more we try to walk our daily personal life without Jesus, the more we get up and forget to spend time with Jesus, the more, the more, the more apart from Jesus we seem to get ourselves in trouble. And I want you to note that their failure in casting out the demon had zero to do with their lack of ability. It had nothing to do with their lack of ability. So what was it? This man brought him to the disciples. When, since Jesus wasn't there, we'll take him to, to the disciples. They, he, maybe he heard of how the disciples had cast out demons. Uh, maybe they had seen whatever it was. This man, his father brought him to, to the disciples and it had every reasonable expectation that they could do it, but they weren't able to. And then we have the response of Jesus and it's actually a rebuke. Verse 19. It says, he answered them, O faithless generation, how long? You can hear the, the sigh, the, the frustration probably. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. I think there's a couple of things in this rebuke. Jesus is speaking to all the people there, but especially the disciples. And, and I think, first of all, it speaks of his patience. How long? Will this continue after everything I've shown you? How long? I mean, can you, can, can you sense maybe some frustration that he's been casting? I mean, yeah, I, can, I think of all the stories where well, one of my favorite ones is where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then they get in the boat and Jesus says, hey, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they think to themselves, literally, it's because we forgot bread. I mean, they didn't get it half the time. And, and, and I, I wonder how many times when Jesus was woken up a second time in a boat that's, that's got storms and all kinds of things going on, and Jesus stands up and he says, hello, stop. Why are you doubting over and over again? But there's patience in this. Jesus doesn't address, he doesn't address their lack of ability in doing the miracle, does he? He addresses their lack of faith. It's not a correction of their failure to complete the task, but it's the source of their attempt. He rebukes a faith that depends on ability, not on the Lord. And please note, he says, how long, but not, I'm done with you. Thank you, Jesus. 
that he always says that to us. He's a, he says, I, I'm, uh, how long? How long till you get it? Because he's, he's wanting, he's willing, he's desiring, he's patient. The Lord is patient with us, constantly drawing us, trying to, to, to endure with our failures and our mistakes and our efforts to do things in our own strength. But he never says, fine, I'm done with you. It's patience in this rebuke. But it's also grace. I love how it goes. He says, how long uh, shall I bear with you? How long? Bring him to me. Bring him to me. I'll take care of it. There's grace. And then Jesus asks him a simple question. He says, how long has this been happening to him? Why does Jesus need to ask this? Is he not God the Father who also knows all things and, can, can, and, and, and knows the history of this boy? Why does he need to ask the question? He already knows the answer. I think there's two reasons. Number one, to show compassion and empathy on the Father, to be able to, to have him hear his story. I mean, when you are struggling with something in your life, is it not a, a source of comfort when somebody says, tell me your story? Let me hear it. And to be able to share your struggle, to be able to, you know, to have someone empathize, to hear. It's a simple question and allows a person to share their story just to be heard. But it's the second reason as well that I think is so important. Notice what the Father says from childhood is the answer. And I think Jesus was trying to get at something. He was trying to show the hopelessness of the condition. That this boy was born with it. That he had it from childhood. That there's not a, a temporary hope that this condition will go away. But it has been since he was here. Since we've known him. He's had it all, all of his life. We've never been able to get rid of it. It's not a temporary thing. He was born with it and has never gotten better. He never will. The purpose of this is to establish that there is no other hope but Jesus. Brothers and sisters, so oftentimes Jesus wants us to get to a place where we recognize that our ailments, that our struggles, that our uh, problems in life only have one hope of solution, and it is God. And until we get to that point, we will never find a cure. Because God wants us to depend on Him. Because that is God-centered faith, not man-centered. And so I believe Jesus asked him how long because he knows the answer and he wants to hear it. And he wants the father to confess that it's from childhood and there has been nothing I've been able to do that has cured him. There's been nothing that we can do. And then he pleads in this incredible request. He says, but, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. You can hear the cry. Maybe you imagine his doubts as he brought him to the, to the people he thought could take care of it. You know, the disciples cast out other demons. Surely he can take care of mine. But maybe in the moment the father thought, well, I guess my son is the one case that's too bad. My son is the one case that's incurable. The disciples had failed him. And there's not much worse than hope dashed after disappointment. In Hebrews Proverbs, I'm sorry, 13, 12. I used to think this was solely my life verse. It says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. And it stopped there. That's the reality. Oftentimes when we have hope of something and it is dashed to pieces, your heart grows sick. But the verse goes on. It says, but a joy fulfilled is a treasure. This is the message of a man-centered faith to the unbelieving world, that they came and the, the disciples were unable to do it. Church can ultimately be 
uh, a church that is built upon man-centered faith will always, always fail. It will diminish. It will, it will fall apart. And, 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 and imagine a world that sees the church and says, there's my hope, and, and goes and finds that it's a failure. It's why when you see pastors have moral failures, it destroys the church. It destroys the, the, the witness, the testimony to the world. So many things, because if the church is built upon a man, it will always fail. And the church cannot be built upon personalities, cannot be built upon anything other than the power of Jesus. I was talking to a friend this week, and he told me about a church in Fort Wayne. It was one of the largest churches, and the pastor was a great man. He's a great speaker. He did really well. But when he retired, the church shrunk in half. I'm sure the Lord did amazing things, but he said he went and talked to that pastor at some point in time. He said, I would have done, if I could have done it all over again, I would have done it completely different. Because a church can't be built on a personality cannot be built upon our abilities. It cannot be built upon anything that will crumble and fall. So notice this man's request. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us. How often is this our approach? I don't want to bother you, Lord. If you, if you have a moment and you can... Pause for a minute from controlling the whole universe and doing all things. If you could just spare a moment, brothers and sisters, that is a lack of faith in being a child of God. If you can. is a lack of faith in belief that He is able. The issue is never if He can. Oftentimes it becomes an issue of if it is His will and purpose in it. And we're going to come back to that at the end of this because it is so important. But we should never get to a place where we say, if you can, because brothers and sisters, if we believe He is God Almighty, there is nothing He cannot do. So Jesus answers in reply, and and maybe this is part of Jesus' astonishment. I, I imagine hearing this, if you can, if you can, if I can. Do you realize who I am? If I can, I've calmed storms. I've controlled the waves. I've I've, uh, uh, raised the dead. I've done all these things. If I can, really? After all that has happened? If I can. And he says, all things are possible for one who believes. This gets people in a lot of trouble. The focus is on the if here. Two things you want to know. What he is not saying is, I can if you believe. Jesus is not saying, I can if you believe. Oftentimes we put so much emphasis on my belief. Jesus does not say, if you believe, I can. He never says that. I've heard people say, well, if I just believe more, he would cure my wife of cancer. Your faith is not what God is dependent on. He's saying that his ability to do miracles is not linked to this father's faith. But he wants to draw out from him what he is saying. You must believe in me as your only hope. Trust in the midst of complete hopelessness. You need to see me as sufficient to meet all your needs. This type of faith acknowledges God, not me. 
It's the difference between man-centered faith and and God-centered faith. And you notice a confession that happens here. The, The man comes with this statement. He says, fine, I believe. Help my unbelief. And what an amazing confession. It's not a contradiction, but it's actually complimentary because it's a statement of the exact same thing that Jesus is saying, even in my belief I need help. What an amazing confession that, that even my belief is, is, is struggling. Uh, it's not, I did my part, therefore God, you do your part. I believe, now bless me. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I even need help in my belief and praise the Lord that Jesus comes to us and says, I will take you in your doubts and your fears and I will work with that because it's about me and what I am able to do, not what you are able to do. And notice Jesus' response. Immediately the Father cries out, uh, I believe, now help my unbelief. And when the, Jesus saw the crowd running together, uh, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you Come out of him and never enter him again. What an amazing thing. Never enter him again. And that is the fact of the matter, brothers and sisters, that when the Lord does a work, it is once and for all. It says, And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that uh, most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus isn't upset with our doubts. He doesn't rebuke the guy and say, sorry, you don't have complete belief. I'm not going to take care of your problem. Your faith isn't strong enough. I'm not going to help you. He isn't looking for perfect faith, but a faith that depends on him. And he heals him. And then we get probably the most important part of this whole passage, starting at verse 28. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Verse 28, it says, And when he entered the house... His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And in in some of the older translations, it even says, but by prayer and fasting. And I'll tell you right now that the application is the same, whether the fasting is there or not. What's the reason? What's the reason that these men who were following Jesus, who had been taught by Jesus, who had been handpicked by Jesus, who walked with him for up to the three years, uh, suddenly could not do something that they were given authority to do, that had done it in the past? What was the reason that they could not do it now? They didn't understand. They come to Jesus. Jesus, why? Why can't we do this? I mean, we, we probably said the right things. We laid hands on him the way you showed us. We, 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 we repeated the right mantra. I mean, we did everything in the right order. We did everything according to the way you showed us. Why couldn't we do it? And I, and I wonder how many times in my own life I do everything in the right order and it still doesn't work. Can't tell you how many times I've got a tractor I've been trying to get running again. If anybody knows how to fix a Case H Farmall 300 from like 1950, you know, you come talk to me afterwards because I can't get it going. I've done all the steps in the right order and it just doesn't seem to work. And I wonder in my own life, I do all the steps in the right order. I, I spend the time doing this, this, and this, and, and it doesn't work the way I thought it was going to work. I go through the financial freedom program and I do this and it still doesn't work. I do this and that and that and this and this and it doesn't work. Why? Same reason the disciples. What does Jesus say? You didn't pray. You didn't pray. 
This kind cannot come out but by prayer. You didn't pray. There was no reliance on me. The time apart from Jesus must have made them think that they were strong enough on their own and they, couldn't, they didn't need Him. How many times does the church get itself in trouble? Because it is going along and, and the Holy Spirit is doing a marvelous work and there's amazing things going on and then they start to think, man, look at what we have accomplished. And they start to lose sight of Jesus and gradually Jesus doesn't become a part of their church or a part of their service and suddenly things just aren't working the way they think and they're declining or whatever it might be and they start to say, well, what's going on? Why, Jesus, why, what's going on? And Jesus says, well, you, you've been apart from me. You didn't rely on me. You didn't, you didn't have any dependence on me. We too oftentimes attempt to do the work of God apart from the power of God. That's what the disciples are doing. Please understand, when we fail to pray, we fail to set a right mindset. We approach tasks with our own plans and our own thoughts. We approach things to, to accomplish them without understanding our dependence and our need. And the fact of the matter is that apart from Him, we can do nothing. We fail to set a right mindset. We fail to communicate our dependence on God alone to do the work. Why do we pray? Because we are communicating, God, I need you. And apart from you, I can do nothing. And I want to voice that. I want to, I want to tell you that I am in desperate need of you. And that's why we pray. It's not just so that we can, you know, sometimes we treat Jesus as a magic genie in a lamp that if we just say the right words and we say at the end the magic words in Jesus' name, that's where I pray and I ask for a million dollars. When I was in college, I got a letter in the mail from some prosperity gospel and they told me if I bought this magic prayer rug, they didn't say magic, but you know, that's what I thought, I could ask for whatever I wanted in Jesus' name and I could receive it. It literally said, do you need a new Lamborghini? I'm not, I mean, I was baffled that they didn't even try to hide it. But that's how we treat Jesus. He's like Santa Claus. We can sit on his lap and here's my list, God. It's the things that I want, not the things that I need, which is him. When we fail to pray, we rely on our own abilities to try and accomplish things. And let's set the record straight. Who gets the glory if we accomplish anything without Him? Me. That's not what He sets out to do. He says, I'll share my glory with no one. Without prayer, we say we are self-sufficient. You try and teach a toddler how to tie their shoes. They don't want you to help. They don't want you to help. They can do it on their own. They'll smack your hand away. I can do it on my own. That is us as human beings. God, I don't need you. Get out of my life. I can do this. We may not physically or verbally say that, but our means of communication and not praying with him, that is what we are telling him. And not only do we communicate we are self-sufficient, but we lie about him. When we don't pray, we tell him we don't need him. He is not our dependency in our self-sufficiency and he isn't glorified in our self-sufficiency. Our purpose as human beings, our aim, our number one, our chief objective is to bring glory to the Father. 
And can you think of a better way to bring glory to the Father than to allow Him to go to Him in total dependency and complete dependency and to allow Him to do the work and then when it's done, we can say, look at what He has done. He changed a wretch like me. So what is the application of all this? How do we take this story, which to me is a a perfect illustration of what oftentimes happens in the church today, that when it separates itself from Jesus, it becomes uh, 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 weak and useless. How do we then do the work of Jesus and the power of Jesus? How do we have a God-centered faith? Number one, we have to believe the truth of the gospel. If we are sitting here today and this has not taken root, deep, penetrated your heart, one of the things that we kept talking about over and over again in Albania was it's not enough to know the gospel. It's got to take root and transform. It's got to go from here to here. It, you know, I shared this story with, with Bernard, this, this young man uh, uh, at the camp, and, and, and we shared the gospel with him for five straight days over and over again. And the last day he said, today I've decided to make it go from here to here. And I hope that's true. But I shared with him, I said, there's a sidewalk that goes to the beach over there and you can know where it goes and you can see where it goes and you can believe it goes there, but if you don't start walking there, you'll never get there. And the reality of the gospel is this, that we are born in sin, that there is nothing in us that is good. Romans chapter 3 tells us that that there is none that seeks after God. There is none righteous. There is not one person who does what is good. And left apart to ourselves, we will never please God because we have violated God's law from birth. We have been uh, filled with wretchedness. And there is no way of sugarcoating that. And the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of why prayer and God-centered faith is so important is that it teaches us that because of Jesus who has come to earth, who has lived for us and obeyed the gospel and obeyed the, the righteous decrees of the law to perfection and then said, on your behalf, I will offer myself as a sacrifice. And that sacrifice offers you righteousness through me. And the beauty of it is, we learn total dependence on him. So how do we have a God-centered faith? We believe that there is nothing I can do except have complete and total dependence on him alone who is able to save my soul. You remove your plans. Whatever people do this day to try and remove the guilt that they have violated God's law, that is your religion. If it's works, that's your religion. If I'm going to get rid of the guilt by trying to give more money to the church, by, by spending time with the poor, by, by uh, uh, showing up on a church service on a Sunday morning, whatever it is, that if you think that's going to remove your guilt, which by the way, it never will, that's your religion. Every single religion, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to remove the guilt because every human being is innate with the knowledge written upon their hearts that they have violated a holy God. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus says, I will take your guilt and I will make it as though you never sinned. 
And even when we struggle to believe that fact, thanks to this example of this Father, we can still take it to Him. God, even when I struggle to believe that You'll really forgive me, even when I struggle to believe that You'll really take care of this problem, I do believe that You are able, but I am struggling. He takes that. He says, I can work with that because you're dependent upon me. So how do we have a God-centered faith? Number one, we have to believe the truth of the gospel. If you are not believing the truth of the gospel, that our dependence on him is total and complete, then there is no point in going further. Because you don't have a God-centered faith. You have a man-centered faith. But second... How do we have a God-centered faith? How do we cultivate it? How do we uh, uh, strengthen it? How do we bring ourselves to a place? We have to be praying. I'm going to hammer on something I have hammered on for over a year. Brothers and sisters, we have to be praying. For all things, personal matters. Family matters. Our church our neighbors, no matter the significance in your own mind, if you think today, well, that's not just, you know, he's controlling the universe. He's keeping it all in place. He's, he's, got, he's kind of busy. I don't really want to. All things matter to him. Your, your thought of what is significant to him is insignificant, okay? Everything matters to him, and there is nothing you can't take to him. All things whether you've lost your keys, it matters to him. I'm sure that's the first thing that comes to your mind. I can't tell you how many times I've lost something. I lose my keys all the time. My wife says, why don't you just put them in the same place every time? Because if I did that, I wouldn't lose them, okay? And the first question my children have started to come up with is, have you prayed about it? We went to Italy before we got to Albania, and I was carrying this, this uh, camera it's not like it's an expensive camera, but it's a, it, you know, it's a nice camera and I'm carrying it to take photos when we get to Albania uh, to help out the church there because they, don't, they just don't have that, that, that type of equipment to take nice photos for, for their church for some advertising and stuff. And so I'm carrying it thinking it's going to be great because by the way, after we're done, we're going to go on a short vacation with my sister through the Swiss Alps. I mean, talk about amazing. You, you can take as many pictures of that as you want, but it just doesn't do it justice, okay? And so we get to, to Rome, and it's like 10 o'clock at night. We have no clue where the bus is, and I'm, I'm trying to talk to all these people in my sketchy Italian, which is non-existent, and like I only know like three words, and, and so I finally find a bus, and I get on the bus, and I'm like, hey, does this bus go to uh, this station so that I can get on it to get to, on the subway to get to our apartment? And he's like, yeah, we get there. And so I get on the bus, I rush, we've got, by the way, these four suitcases about like this, and each weighs 45 pounds, and, you know, with, with Meredith and Hope trying to lug these around, and I'm trying to, you know, be the manly father carrying as many of them as I can. I get them all loaded on the bus, and we finally sit down, and I look at everybody, and I'm like, hey, so how do we we pay for the ticket. And as the bus is going away, he goes uh, back at the airport. I'm like, oh, I guess, guess we're getting a free ride tonight. And so, but I'm flustered. And, and we, we finally, in our sketchy Italian listening ears, we, we hear what we think is our station. So we, we rush to get all our luggage off so that everybody gets off the bus and nobody gets left on. And as I see the bus go down the corner and start to turn, I think there goes my camera back with the camera in it. 
And I look at my kids and I say, well, I guess we don't need the camera anymore. The Lord had more important purposes. And my daughter, in her own way, essentially rebukes me by saying, well, let's pray about it. And I'm like, come on, honey. We're in a foreign country. We don't speak their language. That camera is gone. And she starts praying. And you know, within 24 hours, the guy, the bus driver emails me, hey, I've got your camera. And the only reason why he had my email address is because right before we got on the plane, I grabbed one of those little tags from the ticket counter that you put on with your address. And I tell my wife, hey, why don't you put this on the camera bag? I don't know if we'll need it, but might as well put it on. And this guy drove 40 kilometers. I don't know. That's like probably 10 miles. I don't know what it is in kilometers and miles. It's like, I'm kidding. It's like 20 miles or something. It's like, he drove 40 minutes out of his way to go home to his house, pick it up, drive all the way back at 11 o'clock at night to bring me this camera. And then he refused any money we offered him because he believed in doing the right thing. I don't know what the Lord's going to do with that man in our relationship with him, but he's already friended us on Facebook, and he's seen all of our posts about Albania, and he's seen things. I mean, he even offered me that next time I come back, he's going to give me a free tattoo, so I don't know. (laughs) But we have to be praying. I didn't want to pray. You know why? Because I thought it was hopeless. And we have a model, by the way, for prayer. His name is Jesus. And what an incredible model it is. In Mark chapter 14, verse 36, you have this incredible moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus comes to to this place and he says, Abba, Father. And notice what he says. He says the exact same thing. He tells this father, this young man. He says, all things are possible for you. This is the model. Abba, Father, all things are possible. I believe that you can do all things. Take this cup from me. Anybody that thinks that Jesus wanted to die is fooling themselves. He didn't want to. No human being wants to die. He was more than willing to, though. Abba, Father, take this cup from me. All things are possible for you. I know you can do it. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. That's the model for us. We come to the Father and we say, I know you are able. I know that in the moment that this outcome looks so ridiculously impossible, but all things are possible for you, would you please do it? Yet, whatever is for your glory and for your purpose, that's what I desire. In fact, in Hebrews, we're told that we should take all of our requests with boldness to the throne of grace. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the writer tells us that we should go to the throne of grace. And the, the Greek wording there literally means to assault it, to go with boldness, to go with confidence. And in James, we're told why sometimes we don't get it answered. He says in James chapter 4, verse 3, sometimes you ask amiss. You don't receive because you A, either don't ask or you ask amiss. Why? Because you are seeking after the pleasures of your own heart. You ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. But John tells us in his epistle in 1 John 5, 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. 
meaning God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Brothers and sisters, this is the model. All requests with boldness, examine our hearts for what we are asking. Let him determine what we need, not us determine to tell him what we need, but let him say this is what is for your benefit and for your blessing. And brothers and sisters, believe that God doesn't keep back anything for your good. And so if you are struggling with cancer and he is not healing, it is for your good. I don't know how, but it is. We can never get to a place where we think, I don't think God really cares about me. Or he's answering these requests in a way that I just don't see what his blessing is in my life. Romans 8.32, Paul tells us he did not even hold back his own son. How can we doubt his goodness to us? Matthew 7, 11. I used to teach the quizzers uh, this verse. It's an easy way to remember it. Matthew 7, 11, because you go to 7, 11, right? That's where you get good gifts. Every good gift is from God. Okay, it's not a good analogy, but it still works. They never forget it. Matthew 7, 11. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who loves you, give good gifts to those who ask him? He wants to. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so I would ask, when was the last time you prayed with desperation for the power of God to work through you? Are there struggles in your life that you can't conquer? No victory. I can't, we can't cast out this demon. No victory, spiritual failures, health problems. Maybe you need to ask, what is his will? Who will get the glory through this? Relationships, siblings that, that, that aren't saved as you share the gospel. Man, these Albanians, they were they, every single one that is a part of this church is somehow connected through the pastor sharing the gospel. And then a person gets saved and they go and witness. One, so one of these brothers that we got to watch get baptized, a whole nother one got baptized two years ago, is now part of the church. He went and, 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 and wanted to witness to his two, two older brothers. And he went to Spain for one who was serving in the mafia there. Preached the gospel to him. He got saved, came back to Albania. Then he went to Greece where one of his brothers who had spent eight months in a Greek prison for being in the mafia shares the gospel with him. He gets saved. He comes back. They're all three members of the church. If you're praying about somebody's salvation, depend on him. Are you praying or depending on yourself? I don't like to harp, but man, our 915 isn't just an extra thing. It's part of our church. It's prayer. It's saying that before we ever start a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, we are coming before you, Father, and we need your help because if we don't start with prayer and depending on him, we are doing this whole thing out of our flesh. And we are doing it apart from Jesus. We need to be praying together. You want to teach? I get it, by the way. You, 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 we've got children. They're so little and they'll be disruptive. You want to teach your children what's important? Show them. Bring them to prayer time and teach them that this is important to mom and dad. Get up early on a Sunday morning and bring them to prayer. You say, well, it's too hard because I'm tired. 
are you preparing yourself the night before? Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying this because I want more people sitting downstairs. I'm saying this because I need prayer for this church. And if we aren't praying together, what are we doing? We're doing the work of Jesus without the power of Jesus. I find it interesting. I'm going to close with this. Solomon dedicates the temple of the Lord with this incredibly impressive process. Sacrificing so many animals, dedicating this newly constructed, beautiful place. And at the end of that, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, God visits him and talks to him. Second Chronicles. I got this new Bible. Oh. Can't swipe fast enough. Starting at verse 12, it says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. This is a verse that many of us have heard. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place, for I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be here forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And we say, well, that's talking about the temple. It's talking about the temple, the Old Testament temple. That temple's been destroyed. Well, Jesus came to that temple and, and he declared as he threw out the business uh, tables and, and the, the money changer, he says, my father's house will be a house of prayer. And then he died on a cross. And when he died on a cross, the curtain was torn in two and the old way was cast aside. But it's still a place of prayer. When we gather, it is not church, a place of sermons is a place to worship the Lord and to pray. And we need to consider what our goal is as we move forward as a church and as we talk about being a gospel-defined church, one that is defined by a gospel that has, has called out those who are in a world filled with darkness and sin and, and the gospel shines a bright light on us and we are called out and we are joined together because of that gospel and that was what defines us. And a gospel-driven culture that says that we will come here in a place of freedom where we can share with one another our problems and pray for one another. And when we do these things and we see the amazing aspects of the gospel, how can we not, through the power of Christ, be gospel declaring? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Father, I thank you that in the midst of the story, what seems like utter disappointment in the disciples and their lack of ability and their, their idea to trust in their own strengths and their own futility, you didn't give up on them. Father, I thank you because that's me. That too often times I'm doing things in my own strength and my own abilities, and yet you don't give up on me. 
You are waiting for me to come calling to you. And Father, over and over in your word, you tell us to come to you, to ask, and we have confidence in that whatever we ask, if it is your will, you hear us. And so, Father, we come before you, and we confess anything that we have done apart from you. We ask that you would cleanse us from unrighteousness, that you would uh, do as your word says, that you would cleanse us from all unrighteousness and make us pure. And that we can come before you and ask for you and know that you are able and you will work your might and your glory for your purposes. We thank you, we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.